Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, joining you from South by Southwest in sunny Austin, Texas. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street plunged last week on the bankruptcy of Silicon Valley Bank, the nation's 16th largest and stronger than expected jobs numbers that fueled concern the Federal Reserve will continue rising interest rates to curb inflation. The Biden administration also unveiled its $842 billion defense spending request that fell short of expectations and includes some surprises, like the U.S. Air Force's plan for tanker aircraft that includes an all-new design, by the 2030s, a cost-plus contract for E-7 radar planes and a gap in large amphibious warship production. U.S., U.K., and Australian leaders gather in California tomorrow to announce the plan to equip Canberra with nuclear-powered attack submarines under the AUKUS deal, with the first boats being built in the United States, then another tranche built in the U.K. to a modified design of British the, of the British Astute-class nuclear-powered attack submarine before that ship Uh, is produced uh, indigenously in Australia. In Europe, a successful Anglo-French summit, Russia inches forward in its war against Ukraine and Dassault, Leonardo, and Thales report earnings. Uh, Joining us to discuss all of this and more are our roundtable, Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent uh, equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory uh, in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us and welcome aboard. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, as always, Vago. Happy Sunday, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, indeed, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace uh, sponsors our air and naval coverage and our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium uh, last week was sponsored by GE Aerospace, uh, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon uh, Chemical. Guys, again, welcome back. It wouldn't be Sunday unless we were talking. Uh, Ron, start us off. How did the group perform against uh, kind of a a very tough market, right? I mean, we have the SVB news, uh, which obviously was the talk of uh, uh, South by Southwest. I mean, obviously, it's a very prominent conference uh, for defense innovators, a very, very great ecosystem here in the Austin area uh, with Army Futures Command based here and a lot of, a lot of interesting um, investment in uh, high technology, uh, both at the state, local, and at the federal level. And a lot of VCs here were, were talking about that as well. But talk to us generally more broadly about how the group performed against the jagged market, and we'll get to the SVB uh, impact in a second because it just it doesn't inf- uh, just affect high tech companies in the United States who are going to have t- trouble making payroll, but also those uh, in the UK and elsewhere as well. Take it away, Ron. Yeah, it was a it was a volatile uh, uh, week on the street. Uh, the S and P closed the week down um, about four and a half percent. When you look across some of the the big names we cover, uh, Boeing was down uh, almost five and a half percent. Uh, and that was after uh, it actually outperformed the market on Friday because of the announcement that the FAA approved 787 deliveries to, to start back up again. Um, so it was actually up on Friday when the market was down and it was still down more than the market. Um, Lockheed Martin uh, was uh, essentially flat on the week. North was down about a percent and a half. So the defense names were were defensive, uh, outperforming the market. 
uh, for the week. Uh, and then what, what you might expect is the commercial names were, were off more. Um, you know, Spirit Aerosystems Systems was down almost 8%. Uh, and then the names that you would see as maybe more sensitive to Silicon Valley news um, did much worse. So you know, Rocket Lab was down almost 15% on the week. Um, when you look at the VIX index, the, you know, that index we've been tracking that's been kind of in the high teens, it shot up on the week to uh, almost 25, and that's as high as it's been uh, since uh, uh, early December of this year. And that's a measurement of kind of fear and volatility in the market. I might also note um, the 10-year Treasury um, really kind of just fell off a cliff last week. Uh, 10-year Treasury found, went from the 4% level down to the seven to 3.7% level. So it fell 30 basis points in just a matter of a couple of days. And, and generally speaking, I mean, what, what's the market saying there? It's saying, you know, maybe this is an indicator that the Fed um, is going to slow, even though um, Jay Powell said that they might not. And, and, and just let me frame it all. Um, when... You know, one of the things that our, our chief strategist has said, uh, Michael Hartnett, I don't know if people are familiar with him. I think he's fantastic. Generally, you know, the Fed will raise rates and something like this. And you know, when you get in an interest rate cycle, um, an interest rate cycle will generally increase until something breaks. And it seems like something just broke. So I'm not saying that, you know, the, the, the Fed's going to change what it's doing. But in, in, you know, in history, something like this is one of the things that happens when, when the Fed does what it does. And um, so this really would suggest that we're probably closer to the end of a Fed raising cycle uh, than we are, uh, than maybe some people thought just a couple of days ago. And speaking of it, right, I mean, Treasuries was one of the ways that SVB uh, got into trouble, apparently, you know, buying uh, government bonds. Uh, and that is very long cycle. But then when interest rate goes up, interest rates uh, go up, you kind of can can get uh, stuck. Um well, you know, it's a it's a classic error that you see. It's called like it's called you know um, borrowing short, lending long. So you you lend at one interest rate over a period of time, but you're borrowing another interest rate. And when that interest rate goes up, that what you're borrowing at, you're effectively underwater, right? You're not making any money on um, what you what you lent at. We've seen this in the past. It, it it happens, and the bank protections are put in place and the regulations to help cushion this. Well, obviously, um, the uh, FDIC, uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, as well as Treasury, are working this problem uh, pretty hard. We heard from uh, Dr. Jason Rathji uh, of uh, the DOD's Trusted Capital Program. It was a great presentation yesterday. There were folks who were asking, hey, look, how do I, you know, I'm, I might not be able to make payroll, and I'm developing stuff that is in this innovation ecosystem you guys have encouraged um, to, to satisfy some of your needs, right? So, you know, everybody is working overtime. You know, before we started talking, Sash was saying how hard people are working in London, uh, given the kind of exposure that there is uh, in, in, the, in the UK as well. I mean, what I thought was interesting was a number of VCs that I've uh, spoken to here was sort of the almost the startling lack of sort of, um, you know, uh, due, due diligence in a, in a sense. That's a slightly different conversation, just in terms of how the whole ecosystem worked. And a number of folks were saying, hey, we, you know, we've got to ask different questions of banks, et cetera. But this was also sort of a banking 101 um, mistake. What, what are the implications of a collapse of this size? And what are some of the knock-on implications, right? Because we saw this, you know, when, you know, Bayer and Lehman, it, it had like a domino effect across markets, right? And everybody is kind of like going through what their exposures are, uh, and and whether or not, right? I mean, what, what's the broader implication to this? Sash, maybe why don't you uh, take us away 
on 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 that uh, to to start that off. And Ron, get your take and and as well, Richard. Right? I mean, you also talk and work with a lot of small innovative companies, and and they're kind of figuring out how they're going to make payroll as well. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, just a couple of points. First of all, um, you know, in, in a situation like this, the equity holders lose pretty lose everything. You know, equity is just that; it's the highest form of risk capital. If you are a um, uh, if you are a creditor, if you are a bondholder, you will lose many cents in the dollar, but you may not lose them all. And if you are a um, a borrower in the bank, or, or, or sorry, if you have money, if you're a borrower in the bank, if I, if you have money deposited in the bank, you'll probably get quite a high proportion of it back because that's just the that's the hierarchy of um, a wind up like this. I, I, I am puzzled by the degree to which. Um, you know, there they should almost be, you know, special um, uh, special circumstances for for, uh, for tech and for a tech bank. This was a bank that made an unbelievably um, elementary error in terms of its own uh, treasury moves, and um, got caught, you know, got caught out. And it's a bank which uh, its uh, uh, you know, its customers lent or deposited huge amounts of money with without thinking about the risks it is or should be for any board a you know it's something you should look at every time you look at your risk register which should be every board meeting of where is our cash have we spread it among a you know a wide enough number of um uh banks so that if one of them goes down we don't lose the whole lot and i'm really puzzled as to why that was uh not the case here well, but but I think I mean partly by the uh, by the admission of some of the people in the ecosystem, the way the network works is not sort of a Wall Street, you know, caving helmet with a lot of illumination uh, and getting into every drawer, cupboard, uh, and closet. It's pretty much a very Silicon Valley way of doing it. Uh, Ron recommended to me, Sash seconded it. I'm going to do it. And then I have to outdo Richard when he shows up or there's secrecy and you can't see it in the closet and everybody's okay with that. And so the, the, the you know, admission by several was we have to change all of our mode. Oh, and by the way, just go to Silicon Valley Bank, right? Because they're the innovators bank. Um, and, you know, and then that, that's how it becomes all problematic because there's a degree of groupthink. And again, not that kind of uh, de- degree, uh, perhaps, of scrutiny, right? I mean, so that's the one thing which is, you know, lesson learned. The question is, how do we navigate this period and not have a lot of very innovative companies that are developing the technology for the future get severely disrupted in this process? Richard, I want to bring you into this, right? What are, what are your thoughts? Uh, and, you know, what, what do you think we need to be bearing in mind uh, at, at the end of the day about all of this? Yeah, to me, what's really interesting is th- this is exactly the opposite crisis that I thought Silicon Valley um, VCs and, and, and banks and whoever else, providers of capital would face. Um, you know, it, it's pretty obvious. It's a relatively straightforward story uh, that I think Sash did a great job of outlining about, you know, short and long and, and interest rates, et cetera. And everyone knows, of course, that there would be an impact of higher interest rates upon, you know, capital for riskier startups and, uh, and of course, stuff in our ecosystem or adjacent to our ecosystem. Obviously, you know, the rise of, uh, the rise of various advanced or uh, new air mobility, whatever you want to call it, has been enabled by relatively inexpensive capital and aggressive deployment of capital. And of course, the, the SPAC phenomenon of a year or two ago. I thought that the 
crisis we would eventually face is when basically a lot of the revenue that was anticipated from hundreds of these startups didn't happen. You know, some are going to work out, but there's just too many. And, you know, you give a bunch of them a billion bucks each, you're going to have a problem. This appears to be something a bit more, I don't want to say quotidian, but it, it's, it's probably just as straightforward as what Sash just outlined. So I, I also have to wonder that in this kind of environment where capital does cost money and maybe as a consequence, things are a bit more brittle and mistakes get made. What happens when all of the companies that have sucked up so much cash out there and uh, in, in the world of uh, new technology, of, of new of new aerospace or whatever you want to call it, start to fail, as everyone admits they will. And that to me is going to be a, an, an interesting and hopefully not too depressing moment. Okay, guys. So as we're discussing this, uh, Janet Yellen uh, is uh, reported to have told CBS's Face the Nation uh, that the U.S. government won't bail out Silicon Valley Bank, uh, that this is more of an issue uh, for the Federal Deposit Insurance uh, corporation uh, that said on Friday will come cover up to $250,000 per depositor, right, per uh, the law. Uh, and this really, this is really a decision for the FDIC as it decides on what the best course is to resolve this firm. Um, all right, Sash, kind of give us, give us your take, right? I mean, if the U.S. government isn't going to be uh, diving in here in any uh, significant capacity, what does that mean ultimately for the continued liquidity of the bank and, and the outlook for the people who've got their money there and, and investors in the entire ecosystem? The bank will have to be restructured. The bank will almost certainly um, get uh, taken over. The question will be, uh, and, you know, the, you know, the, I mean, the bank is, um, uh, is effectively being left to hang out and dry as a taxpayer, um, you know, clearly not in your jurisdiction, but as a taxpayer, this is absolutely right. This is all about moral hazard. You cannot have, um, uh, you know, basically people being incompetent and then being bailed out. Um, and that goes for both sides. That goes for people who deposited their money at the bank without thinking about diversifying um, where it was, and without thinking of the risks of that. And if you're a director of a company, you should have been thinking about that for over a decade, not just, you know, Thursday afternoon uh, when... Uh, when things start to go wrong. This is, this is company director 101, even in tech. Um, but, you know, I, 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 th I think most of the depositors, because um, that's what we're talking about here, will get most of their money eventually, but eventually is measured in weeks and months. They're going to have to work, you know, they're going to be going to other banks and to their shareholders and so forth. It's going to be a really busy week as they try to get some liquidity back. Some of them will go under. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's very harsh, but it would be just the same if any other bank that wasn't so systemically important in one industry, uh, you know, had, had gone under in any other country or certainly any, any other capitalist country. Um, I just want to uh, close this out because we've got to move on because we have so much uh, to discuss. Ron, do you have any last thoughts you want to add before we move on here? Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting about this whole thing is when you think about what, you know, DOD did in terms of you know, trusted capital or just you know trying to um, cultivate um, this kind of innovation. This is probably not a risk that they they thought about. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you know specifically, you know, kind of you're pulling the aperture to you know, A and D. Um, you know, this you know is something that DOD is going to have to address and figure out for the future. Um, and uh, it, it it'll be my sense is it'll be a challenge because. You know, when they probably laid out the risk and when they were thinking about this, 
you know, they might have been thinking about you know, money getting into companies from China, this, that, other things that kind of more, um, how can I frame it, more potentially meaningful national security issues, not specifically a bank failure. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. And, and it's a little bit reminiscent, right, in the beginning of the big short, where uh, they have the Mark Twain quote, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Uh, so you just have to think about uh, that a little bit, right? It's, it's, it's your job to think about risk. And collectively, people don't think about risk the right way, and they end up getting in trouble, because they assume, well, that's not going to happen. Um, and that's as true for Russia going to war against Ukraine or, God forbid, something happening between the United States and China. Anyway, we have so much more uh, we have to discuss. So I'm going to uh, stop it uh, right there in terms of the SBV discussion. And we, and we hope that this um, that, you know, over the coming days, uh, there are remedies to this situation, because I think that um, I, I think we have to try to figure out creatively things to do for companies that really, really matter. And I think there has to happen. There might, it might be beneficial to have some kind of prioritization, especially for those who are doing work that is particularly important in particularly important fields uh, to keep those companies from going under and keep their teams together. I mean, again, at the end of the day, it's about the people. Um, okay. Um, Ron, how, how do you think this is going to impact futures? Just before we, we move on. Yeah, I think Monday, Monday, Monday morning's open will be pretty darn volatile. Uh, so we'll we'll see because there's, I think all different levels of you know risk appreciation, understanding, misunderstanding uh, of how this is going to play out. So I would imagine nine thirty Monday morning in New York, um, maybe you know call it four hours earlier in London. Um, it's going to be a pretty action packed open uh, in in the market. Um, we might even see some of it in, in Asia when Asia opens um, uh, soon. So, so we'll see. All right, let's uh, move on. Sash, uh, big Anglo-French uh, agreement. So that's good that uh, relations between Paris uh, and London are warming. Um, obviously, there are broader uh, takeaways uh, on the UK uh, and European markets uh, in the wake of, for example, the announcement of the AUKUS deal. Um, and, and it looks like there might be uh, ARIA, right? Uh, the, the new name for Saudi, uh, a little bit like United and TED, uh, looking to buy 100 uh, wide-body uh, aircraft uh, as, as well. Sort of walk, walk us through the drivers and how the group uh, performed last week. We're going to take a much deeper dive uh, into the AUKUS deal uh, in a moment. And obviously, uh, Dassault, Leonardo, and Talos all reported, you know, as you noted in your note, <laughs> a terribly long call that was not terribly helpful, which was a politely, which was politely damning criticism coming from an Englishman. Uh, anyway, walk us through all of these trends and how they affected uh, European markets. Or yeah, affected the group on European markets. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the group, the group was off. Was actually, sorry, the group was up actually a tiny amount last week, about 0.6 of a percent. Civil was off a percent. Defense was up a percent. So, you know, uh, n- not very many big moves. I suspect that if we have a risk-off week coming up, you're going to see the spread between defense and civil uh, gap open again, if only for for a few days. Um, but you know, I think it's been very interesting. You know, the last month or so, when Ron and I have talked about market performance, different sides of the Atlantic, it's been very interesting how uncorrelated the performance of European and uh, US aerospace and defense stocks have been. You know, typically, you know, one has had a good week, the others had a, a, a lousy week, or, or vice versa. But there's been much less of moving in lockstep than 
than you might you might have thought from what is a very very highly integrated uh, global sector overall. So you know what were the standouts last week? Um, and your know, biggest performer by a long way was Dassault Aviation, um, up eight uh, percent. They had not just you know good results, uh, profitability significantly ahead of our forecasts. Uh, their cash performance was fantastic. Um, partly they were getting um, uh, customer prepayments in on the big defence programmes a bit earlier than they expected, but I think also they've just been much better at holding on to the cash one, once they've got it. And you know, DAS has got over €9 billion Euros of, of net cash. Um, they are being very conservative, as they always are, about their guidance for 2023, but it was a very, very powerful um, set, of, set of numbers. And you know, what you've got is a you know, company that, 2023 is going to be fine, but beyond that, particularly mid-decade and onwards, as the UAE Rafale uh, deal starts, I think um, you know Dassault's earnings are going to be accelerating. The revenue is going to be accelerating. Their earnings are certainly going to be accelerating uh, over that time, and they clearly do not see um, the current targeted Rafale production rate, which is about you know between 35 and 40 a year, as being a ceiling. If they can get more orders for delivery in the second half of the decade. They're going to keep raising the production rate, and they're very, very uh, efficient, very effective uh, when they do that. So that was good. Um, by contrast, I mean Leonardo's results were fine. By contrast, Talis, which um, you know is ha Dasso has a strategic stake in Talis, but Talis is also a major supplier to Dasso. So there's this sort of symbiotic, what circular relationship there. Talis's results were fine, but um, you know they're not looking for very much. In 2023, 5%, 5, 6% earnings growth, uh, or sorry, revenue growth, bit of, possibly a bit of margins, and then things improve thereafter. Here's what struck me, though, after what was a very, very long conference call. Thomas Management, in nearly two hours, mentioned Ukraine, the U word, only twice. It's, it, it's almost as if they're embarrassed about the fact that there's a war going on in Ukraine. Um, and they don't seem to want to say in public or recognize possibly that the war in Ukraine has changed the outlook for European defense, certainly for a decade and probably for longer, which is odd given that they are a European defense company. I mean, there's no more European defense company than Talis in many respects. Um, uh, it's all very well being sort of cautious about uh, being seen to um, you know, rejoice in a war because wars are horrible for the people concerned. But you should at least recognize that the budget outlook for every single one of your, your major European customers is inflecting up and the risk is, is upside from there. But to only mention it twice and one time they actually mentioned the war in Ukraine is a risk, i.e. it's making life very complex for ourselves, I thought was astonishing. It also could be a little bit of a reflection of, of sort of the, the, the French uh, viewpoint uh, in this as well, right, that it's necessary to negotiate an end. Uh, to all of this, that it's going to end up becoming a stalemate. And and um, um, so it is going to be very, very interesting uh, to, to watch whether or not any other companies uh, sort of mirror uh, mirror that line as well. And, and Richard, I want to uh, bring you in to uh, talk about the possible uh, jet uh, order uh, of 100 new airplanes. And I should apologize, right, that it, it, I, I said it's, you know, I made a comparison to uh, United and TED, which not, might not exactly be uh, accurate. But anyway, the, the importance of, of this order and what does it tell us, especially, right, I mean, the Saudis have always a way of 
um, you know, sending one signal. We work with China uh, to uh, resolve, you know, and, and reinstate diplomatic relations uh, with uh, Iran, right? I mean, it's seen as a big coup for, for Beijing. And then, you know, there's something that goes over to West and to the United States and, and elsewhere. Maybe that's not the case. But anyway, what does this order mean? Yeah, we don't know what kind of order it will be, conditional or otherwise, because, of course, it's a completely new start carrier. And more importantly, I think it sort of depends upon the creation of like some sort of new shadow, different society in Saudi Arabia. You know, you look at what happened in the other Gulf carriers and they basically said, right, you know, we're going to be reformed enough to allow alcohol on planes. And when you get to your tourist destination, uh, you know, we're not going to be Western. But on the other hand, it's not going to be too alien either. And we're also going to create, you know, places where you're going to want to go as a tourist. So, you know, it's, it's quite conceivable now that you would want to go to Dubai and see it as opposed to 30 years ago when the whole thing started. Saudi Arabia, of course, is none of those, uh, <laughs> you know, unless you're a, a hardcore uh anthropological type or archaeological type, you're probably not going to want to go there on on holiday. It's not a very open society, so they have to open it. Okay. No, you can't have a drink on a plane. That will have to change. Uh, okay. So, you know, you've got MBS saying, well, we're going to build this city in the desert. It's not going to be like our other cities. It's going to be this happy, eco-friendly, high-tech thing called Neem, I believe, you know, which they're spending very heavily on. They're going to reinvent themselves starting with this new city. Meanwhile, gradually allowing miraculous revolutions like imagine that the concept of a woman driver. Oh, boy. Uh, and on top of that, the airline, which, of course, reflected this very, very conservative society, will be you know, replaced or supplanted or something with this, you know, Rhea, which is going to look more like, you know, your typical Emirates Etihad, you know, Qatar model which is great in theory. Now go make it happen. I, in other words, whatever they order is going to be the single most risky and conditional order that we've seen added to the books in, in, in a great many years, perhaps ever. Ron, I want to go to you. And then Sash, you uh, didn't discuss the Anglo-French summit, but we have to move very fast because we got a lot of ground to cover uh, because we talked about the Silicon Valley Bank thing a little bit longer in part because news dropped while in the middle of our conversation. Go, go ahead, uh, Ron. You had a thought on uh, on either this deal, um, although I think things are changing, right? I mean, the thing is the Saudis have a lot of money. They do have a leader who wants to change things. They are discussing whether or not to change alcohol rules, right? So there's a lot of stuff that is moving uh, culturally and otherwise, right? And then there's that new other cube development um, that they're doing for this like sort of virtual futuristic gold cube uh, is all I can uh, think of it. But go, go ahead, uh, uh, Ron, and then Sash, I know that you want to add a word, not just to the summit, but also why Saudi Arabia could actually be a more attractive tourist destination than people think now. Go ahead, Ron, and then Sash. Just quickly wanted to just kind of circle back on uh, Embraer and, and GE, um, both meaningfully outperformed this week. They're both up about 5%. Uh, Embraer reported this week, and, um, and their numbers and their outlook were, were better than what people were looking for in terms of cash flow and margins, and, and hence, I think that was reflected in the stock. Uh, and then GE hosted a, an investor day in Cincinnati, uh, and you know, gave their outlook for uh, where they think things are going, uh, and that was clearly applauded. Uh, I think on on uh, on Thursday the shares were up at one point almost ten percent, uh, basically on the tail of uh, what's going on on the leap and future aftermarket. And and also I think investors are looking at 
you know the the eventual separation of GE, GE Aviation from their Vanova Energy business as creating another large cap, fairly liquid aerospace name that's got a lot of aftermarket exposure that could be a potential alternative investment to uh, sort of the usual suspects uh, in aerospace. Uh, so I thought it was important to mention that. Yeah, uh, certainly, uh, certainly uh, interesting. And all eyes are on whatever formal uh, announcement will happen, uh, obviously, in the course of the Pentagon budget about the adaptive engine uh, program. There are concerns that the Air Force might not have the money to be able to underwrite that. So we'll be watching that very closely uh, to see what the formal announcement is on that, uh, because there is a concern. And we'll talk about the budget in a minute that the budget was actually came in lower than what was originally anticipated and what people were, were planning for. Uh, Sash, uh, very quickly, the Anglo, uh, you know, Anglo-French summit and why Saudi Arabia could be a more attractive tourist destination from your standpoint. Yeah. Um, Anglo-French summit, what, you know, what matters there? It's just you know, tremendously positive that, um, you know, the two biggest defense powers in Europe, the two nuclear powers in Europe, two of the biggest economies in Europe are actually able to, get back together, talk like adults, agree stuff, um, uh, it, you know, because this has been t- wholly absent um, from the governments of uh, Theresa May, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Uh, so we've had we've had six years of being rude to the French and it hasn't got up, us, the UK, anywhere at all. And, you know, it really didn't do European um, uh, unity uh, any good either. Um, the most interesting comment that came out of this summit, though, uh, actually came from a Frenchman who said, this is all very well, but there are no grand projets, no big defense projects to, to, to glue it together, you know, to, to make the relationship uh, even stronger. Now, you know, the UK and France have got ongoing projects in nuclear warheads, in uh, mine hunting technology in particular, but there was nothing new announced uh, last week that would you know, keep the UK and France together in slightly different areas of defense um, and uh, you know, therefore act as a, as, as a binder. And that's something that both countries, but really particularly the UK have got to think about. My feeling is most likely to happen in missiles, poss- uh, probably cruise missiles, um, but, you know, there needs to, be, needs to be more. However, it's clearly great that we, um, you know, the, the two con- countries are, you know, are back on, you know, very, very good speaking terms again. Just, a, I mean, just a tiny detail on Saudi Arabia. I mean, my parents have been Saudi Arabia as tourists and said it's absolutely fascinating. And some of the ancient remains, um, uh, particularly on the Red Sea coast, are remarkable. I have to say, though, to put it in perspective, my parents have been to Afghanistan more than they went to Saudi Arabia. They thought there was way more to see in, in Afghanistan. And uh, I see that... Uh... Uh, their children have carried on the fine tradition of adventuresome travel. So well, well done. And you've passed that well to your children as well, uh, Sash. So kudos. Um, a quick reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by uh, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, uh, including next week uh, at the satellite uh, conference and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gertler and the entire team uh, is going to be on the program on Tuesday to analyze the budget from each of their uh, perspectives. Uh, okay, uh, speaking of budgets, I'm going to get to the budget uh, in just a moment, but first, uh, real quick, uh, get uh, both uh, Sash, your take, uh, and Ron, your take uh, on uh, the AUKUS uh, deal. Uh, obviously, uh, something which was a, a priority 
um, the Australians um, unwound uh, their contract uh, with uh, France's naval group uh, for uh, the conventional versions of the Barracuda nuclear attack submarine. Uh, that was canceled in favor of a new uh, submarine program. The last 15 months have been about uh, developing a plan, and the plan is uh, Virginia-class attack submarines uh, in the beginning. Uh, th that allows time for the uh, UK to buy American uh, Virginia-class attack submarines, release them or temporarily use them, uh, build up the capability. Folks are going to forward deploy US and UK forward deploy submarines uh, in, in the meantime before these ships are built. That allows the UK to develop uh, a modified version of the astute submarine, build a couple of those as production is transferred then uh, to uh, the UK. Folks are looking at this as something very complicated and actually not likely to yield submarines until the late 2030s, if not the 2040s. Sash, start us off on, you know, is what, what the response to this deal, uh, ultimately, what it means industrially, and by the way, it will really tax the industrial capacity of both the United Kingdom and the United States to try to do this because we do not now have the industrial capability to do it. Everybody is very interested in what the actual announcement is going to be uh, tomorrow. But start us off, Ron, give us your sense, and then we have to talk about the budget and, and wrap because I'm, uh, there's a lot of U.S. budget news as well. But real quick from both of you guys. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, okay. I look, I'll give, I'll give you... Um... I'll give you the good news and then the bad news, or the good take and then the bad take. The good take, um, from the point of view of the UK, uh, getting Australia into the next generation uh, SSN development is phenomenally positive. And if that happens, you know, that makes the next generation SSN, um, which would be effectively batch two astute or something like that, probably a lot more sophisticated than that, actually. Um, uh, that would make that a 15 plus boat class um, here's a thought. Who's the next Five Eyes nation that's going to need submarines is going to be Canada. They cannot struggle on with four faintly asthmatic diesel electric submarines forever. I wonder if, you know, if everything went really well, um, there would end up being a, a global uh, Angl uh, Anglosphere SSN uh, that Canada, Australia, the UK would co-develop, co-buy. That would be a fantastic outcome, I think, for all three countries. Um, here's the negative side of it now. Australia gets Virginia-class submarines first. You get Virginias, you get the whole package associated with, with that. It'd be very interesting to see if that requires the captain of, a, of an Australian Virginia-class submarine to be a nuclear submariner, or whether, as in the Royal Navy, uh, you are a submariner first and, you know, nuclear engineering is left to um, a guy with, a, uh, with, with the dirty rags down at, down at the back end of the boat or not. But my feeling is, once you've got a Virginia submarine, are you going to give that up? Probably not. I think it's a long time for, for UK firms to wait before we can actually see whether Australia is really committed to this or not. Um, if in five, eight, ten years time, the Australians said that we'll, we'll just buy a couple more Virginias, keep on with them because they are so good. And they are. I wouldn't be surprised. But people in UK industry and UK politicians would be very disappointed. Um, I would point out uh, Canada did look uh, at nuclear powered attack submarines uh, and decided against them because of uh, the prohibitive uh, cost nature. And I would point out, even from a UK perspective, yes, because the Royal Navy does things differently and the seamen officers are the ones who end up commanding and it's the engineer officers that, quote, mind the kettle. 
even uh, the commander of a British nuclear-powered yeah. uh, attack submarine has goes through extensive nuclear training, just not as extensive as the nuclear training uh, that our commanding officers go through because everybody is in the same pipeline, right? You do WEPs, you do weapons, you do uh, your engineer tour, you do your XO tour, and then you you end up uh, going going to command. Um, Ron, your sense uh, on what this means? I mean, obviously, this is potentially good news for uh, both electric boat. Uh, as well as uh, Huntington Ingalls, HII. Uh, obviously, Newport News uh, does that work. HII does have a, a, a presence uh, in Australia uh, as well, which, which bodes well. But at the end of the day, this is about a limitation of the industrial base. We're still not up to two Virginias a year because we don't have the industrial capacity. And BWXD, for example, the reactor maker has said, hey, you guys are going to have to pay for facilitation because you know, we're, we're not building you know, we need steady state, not just, you know, a couple of years with one boat or a couple of years with three boats and, and stuff like that. How, how's the industrial base responding to this? How are the shares responding? And what's ultimately the kind of plan we're going to need for the long term? Yeah, when the when the announcement happened, um, you know, BWX was, was up. Um, they're a clear um, beneficiary uh, of this, right? And I think it's it's pretty much understood that there'll be a supplier on this one way or the other. Um, the way it played out, honestly, I didn't think was all that surprising. I mean, if you want to get uh, nuclear submarines uh, to Australia in a relatively timely fashion, the only way you're going to do it is forward deploy them and then, you know, buy an, an existing design uh, and then kind of work from there. Um, I, I guess what the, the talk is, what it's going to be potentially three to five additional uh, Virginia class. Uh, you might have a, a better view on this than I do. I don't know if they're going to come out of um, potentially some of the U.S. buy or if they're going to be on top of the U.S. buy. I guess ultimately they'll be on top of the U.S. buy. But for your point, I mean, the real issue is the industrial base. Um, so this you know, ultimately would be you know, three to five more submarines on top of what's going on. Um, and like, like you pointed out, I mean, they, they can't really do two a year quite yet. Uh, and then you've got also Columbia going on, which is, puts another strain on uh, the industrial base on top of everything else. So. Um, you know, my understanding is, right, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, if, if we could get three Virginia submarines today, the Navy would do it, but the industrial base just can't do that, um, at least not at this point. So um, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. So broadly, it's a good thing uh, for the industrial base, right? Buying more is always good, but how you get there is the much bigger question. Uh, it is, uh, uh, it is indeed. And, and the concern is that this, right, I mean, Building two Virginias and then Columbia is the equivalent of five uh, nuclear attack boats a year, which is a pretty daunting goal. And and Columbia is not yet up to rate, right? I mean, we're still working it. And now you would have to add ships on top of that for the Australians. Um, and, and uh, you know, that, that kind of becomes a question. And then the other question is, right, are these the Virginia payload modules, super subs, or are they... Uh, a smaller version, and there's this sense that they would be the, the not the extended uh, boats, but they would be the, the I guess I don't know if you would call it short hull uh, boats. But we'll see more tomorrow, and can discuss more uh, tomorrow okay, as what's, well. What's What's fascinating about this you know, is, and I've said this to clients for a while now, we're in a bull market for submarines. You know, ultimately, you know, ten years ago, who would have imagined that? But we're in a serious bull market for submarines. Um, I, I think it's awesome. And indeed, there are some in the U.S. submarine force that are looking forward uh, to the Australian investment and the capability to help facilitize 
U.S. industry to produce more subs to scratch their itch as well as our itch, uh, right? Uh, although, um, you know, it, it, you have to spend money to make money, uh, ultimately, and, I, and that's, I think, an important message. We also have to invest in this capability uh, as well. Speaking of that, budgets. Richard, uh, start us off right now. I mean, a lot of the news is, uh, you know, some of the big news happens to be Air Force news. Uh, I was out at AWS where Andrew Hunter, the Air Force acquisition executive, briefed the, the, the new tanker plan, scrapping KCX, KCY, KCZ uh, in favor of getting about 75 more aircraft, including on a sole source by presumably KC-46s, sort of suggesting we, we don't want to have a um, sort of a different design, a bridge tanker, you, you know, this sort of orphan fleet of 75 airplanes that might not have anything to do, potentially bad news, obviously, for the Lockheed Martin Airbus team that were hoping for the bridge tanker and eventually, you know, either getting the Y or the, or the Z uh, program saying, hey, the U.S. Air Force really needs a new tanker developed for penetrating missions so that we can operate our tanker force forward in, in contested airspace. Then we've also got uh, the interesting contract, and they want this fielded in the 2030s, by the way, so it's not like a distant uh, program. Um, and at the same time, acquired the E-7 uh, to replace the aging E-3 Sentry that everybody wel welcomes, kind of the wedge tail design that's become sort of a global standard increasingly, but did it on a cost plus contract. Walk us through what this tanker decision uh, ultimately means, right? I mean, potentially good news for Boeing, not so good news for Lockheed uh, uh, and Airbus, but potentially a fascinating outlook for what this new aircraft looks like, because I think Boeing was hoping that once we get through the first tranche, we, we can win the second tranche and the third tranche, because obviously the Air Force would want a standardized fleet, right? Which is one of the reasons why they got rid of the KC-10s or getting rid of the KC-10s. Kind of walk us through what what this uh, decision means, and Ron, want to get your take on that, as well as the decision to gap uh, uh, large deck amphibious production. I don't think any of these decisions, by the way, are, might survive contact with Congress, but that's a different issue. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, on that happy last thought, <laughs> um, I think you know first and foremost, I, I, I think they should be viewed holistically. You know, first and foremost, Casey. Uh, the KC plan that's been unveiled with the new uh, the new budget effectively de-risks the KC-46 and means that this money-losing program might actually make some money in the long run because you're adding about 75 or 80 planes on top of the 179. You know, it, the first half of the 179 or so was going to lose money. Development is going to lose money. There was some vague hope that in the second half or 80 or whatever it was that they would make a bit of money that probably wouldn't make good the six billion or so in losses but you know another 80 planes added to that yeah that'll probably do it especially with all the sustainment you get from a 250 aircraft fleet that's certainly welcome news for boeing um also welcome news of course is yes uh, lockheed martin and airbus are out of the game there's nothing in there for them because they're you know well airbus they're not going to bid on kcz lockheed martin might and this is the big question of what is KCZ? What assumptions are we making about a penetrating tanker? What size? Uh, what shape? Obviously, to have any meaning, it's going to have to be bespoke. That is to say, they're going to have to actually design a large airframe. What are the implications there? You know, it's the easiest thing in the world to play as a game in, in, uh, in, in, in Washington defense is to see industrial policy where there isn't. 
you know, because of course, you know, it, it, it seldom factors into KPPs with weapon selection decisions. Uh, people don't talk about it, but on the other hand, it's, it's, it's a fun game. So we play it. Um, and I'm hard pressed to think how this wouldn't be one colossal industrial policy, a way of keeping Boeing whole, because of course, Boeing has taken more body blows than any other aerospace company on the planet. Many of them self-inflicted. Boeing has got to be under the gun in terms of new capabilities, you know, because it's been a long time since they've done anything new. Uh, if I were DOD, I would be saying, all right, how do we keep them in the game as our large aircraft uh, designer? Because no one else really has this capability anymore. We'd rather not pay for someone else to stand it up. All right. Well, we give them KC-46, 250 planes. KCZ, that'll be theirs. Maybe they can even do something with that. You know, the way NASA thinks about, of course, this is the same with the, you know, transonic truss braced wing. Let's keep them going on large design work. Uh, and then at the same time, we'll give them E7 to keep them financially whole and make sure they're incentivized. And uh, maybe even start talking about a CX because, you know, the C-17 fleet is wearing out a lot faster than expected. Uh, C-5s are, you know, that's a, that's a 2040 retirement date, too. We've got to start thinking about something in the 2030s by way of a new start strategic lifter. All of this points to Boeing. So, again, not necessarily saying this is industrial policy, but, boy, it sure seems like it might be. And, uh, you know, as for KCZ, what they could possibly do, well, ugh, that's anyone's guess. Can you really design something that is relatively large, long-ranged, somewhat stealthy and not resembling a B-21. <laughs> I, I don't know whether that's right. possible. Indeed, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what is formally disclosed tomorrow because obviously everybody got uh, briefed but uh, is embargoed uh, until uh, tomorrow morning uh, on, on disclosing their stories. Um, I would point out uh, that from the perspective of the Air Force leadership, uh, they make it clear this is not industrial-based strategy. This is you know, predicated on what the needs of the United States Air Force are and uh, trend lines and threat lines and the kind of capabilities they're going to have to build. And Andrew Hunter did talk about, hey, we're also going to need a, tr need a transport roadmap uh, because uh, we're going to need a different generation of lifters. And you know, the C-17 fleet got has gotten enormous wear out of 20 years uh, of uh, war. Indeed, the entire Air Force uh, took a lot of wear, uh, whether on the command plane side of things or the tanker part of it or, or the lift, and, and as well as the combat air forces. I mean, just consider every time, you know, every time the Russians, you know, approach Alaska, you know, F-22s, uh, you know, I mean, a number of airplanes are, are sent up there, but F-22s also do some of that responding. Uh, Ron, your sense on how this plays out, what does it look like? What does it mean for all the players? Because, right, I mean, even if Lockheed won, you know, a transport contract, I mean, it's, it's, it makes C-130s. It, it's not building C-5s. It doesn't have that kind of residual capacity anymore. Hence partnering with, right, I mean, they can't just pull one of their l 11s off the line. That's why they're partnering with with Airbus. Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, your sense on how all of this plays out and whether Richard, you know, has the right, if cynical approach that this is, you know, sort of an industrial base call. Well, I mean, I think, I think Richard's point of view is probably pretty valid, right? I mean, Lockheed hasn't done anything big like that in a long time. That doesn't preclude them from being able to do it. Um, probably it's contingent upon Boeing's execution on, um, you know, in the future. 
um, if they continue to execute like they have, say for the last decade, um, that probably does put some you know, fuel under the fire that maybe even on some of these uh, larger transport style aircraft, uh, we should further uh, broaden the industrial base just because of the risks of at one company. Um, we've talked about that in a different context before. So we'll see how that plays out. But I mean, there's just, there's not that many companies in the U.S. that um, you know by themselves have the uh, I'll call it the, the legacy heritage to to pull together um, you know a transport style aircraft because I mean ultimately uh, a tanker is just a freighter. Uh, troop transport is uh, a pretty complex freighter, but it's still just a freighter. Um, so we'll we'll see how that all goes. I would say on the budget itself. I think what was interesting, I think on the street, folks were expecting, you know, the president's request around 835 billion. So it came in a little ahead of that. I would note, however, if you look at how, how the budget dynamics played out last year and the year before, Congress added about 5% to the budget. Um, so if you look at the president's request and you were to top it off at another 5% and then throw on top of that, another call it 25 to 40 billion for the Ukraine, it gets you to a number that's worth of 900 billion, right? So my right. my take on the president's budget is, or the president's budget request, I mean, that's the, the starting bid. Um, we'll see what, you know, kind of the bipartisan group in Congress that uh, is supportive of defense, what they want to do with it. And then ultimately how the negotiations go with the Freedom Caucus and so on and so forth that makes things, you know, super noisy and, and pretty volatile, but... I think when it's all said and done, we will end up with a budget. If we don't, if we don't end up in a year-long CR, we'll end up with a budget that's probably five to seven percent above where this request came in. Um, and and so you don't expect uh, there to be that gap in amphibious warship, warship production. Ultimately, is what you're saying, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing yes. that Congress will remedy. Yep, exactly. Yep. All right, guys. Uh, thanks so very much. Uh, terrific conversation. Uh, obviously, a shifting ball as uh, some announcements were being made uh, as uh, we were recording. Thanks very much uh, for your time. I uh, hope you guys have uh, a great day, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks again, Vago. See you next week. Always enjoy this, Vago. Thank you. And thanks very much to Bell for their generous sponsorship to help make this program possible. Thanks very much, and we'll see you again tomorrow.